series of unfortunate, perhaps providential circumstances. really has always loved to be told stories. Especially stories about princesses. And if you've read a lot of princess stories, which I have, they essentially all have the same plot. There will be the damsel in distress. The situation appears hopeless. A, a princess who somehow ended up homeless on the other side of the world and by some series of unfortunate, perhaps providential circumstances that you could not foresee. And when it seems like all hope is lost, when it seems completely impossible, her prince will come riding in on a white horse and he will rescue her with true love's kiss and they will all end with the same phrase, and they lived happily ever after. Gracie has also become uh, taken here recently with stories about Megan and I. She likes to hear stories about when we were dating or stories about the time when I, we both went camping early in our marriage and dad forgot the tent poles all the way back in Alabama. We're in North Georgia. She loves these stories. And so now she's gotten to where when I tell, when we, when I'll tell her a story about Megan and I, at the end of the story, I'll, we'll finish the story and then she'll say, and they lived happily ever after. Isn't childhood ignorance beautiful? Because all of us know that life is just not that clean. All of us know that life is just not that neat. That not everybody has a prince on a white horse that comes and then you just say, and they lived happily ever after. In fact, for most of us, we would be content if we could just say, and they lived happily occasionally, right? They lived happily every now and then. Because the truth of the matter is, is for many, happiness is a fairy tale. For many, happiness is only something that comes on the Hallmark Channel or in children's books. Happiness seems like it's a long way off. It seems like it's the impossible dream. This morning, that is what, our, what God's Word is speaking to. You'll turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 is speaking to the happiness that is available to us in God. It's something that is actually spoken of often throughout the scriptures, but it is spoken of specifically in Psalm 1. So if you have your Bibles, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Psalm 1 reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. It opens up the way many scriptures open up. In fact... Psalm 1 opens up the same way that Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, opens up. He opens up with a beatitude saying, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man or woman that's gender neutral. Blessed is the person 
Now the word blessed there can be directly and literally translated as happy. Happy is the person. Happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. Happy. It's the same way that Jesus opens up in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are those that are persecuted. Happy. And so as we open up this word, it is offering something to us that all of us are looking for. It's offering something to us that all of us are desperately seeking with our lives, whether we admit it or not. Now, I realize that the pursuit of happiness has been abused by many preachers. The pursuit of happiness has been abused to tell you that if you will come to God and you will make God happy with your money or you will make God happy with your faith or if you will even go so far as to say somehow that you can put God in your debt that somehow God will bless you with health and wealth and that then you will be happy. That's not what I'm talking about. But brothers and sisters, just because somebody has abused happiness, do not let us become confused as believing that there is no happiness available to the children of God. Let us not be uh, so confused by the abuses of Scripture that we refuse to acknowledge that God offers genuine, soul-satisfying, life-giving happiness to His children. No, happy is the man who does not walk in the way and the counsel of the wicked. Happy is the man who does not uh, sit in the seat of the scoffer, nor stand in the way of the sinner. Happy is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Happy. Now the happiness that he's talking about is the happiness that doesn't go away at night. The happiness he's talking about is not hopping from one mountaintop experience to the next mountaintop experience to the next mountaintop experience. The happiness he's talking about is not this existential, experiential happiness where you get goosebumps for a minute and then all of it goes away as quickly as it came. No, the happiness that he's talking about is not the happiness that prevents storms from coming into your life. The happiness that he's talking about is the kind of happiness that gets you through the storms when they do come into your life. You see, I wonder how many of you have fluctuating happiness. I wonder how many of you have happiness that's high one moment and gone the next. I wonder how many of you find yourself happy one day and in misery the next day. Because you see, happiness is as constant as the source of your happiness. Your happiness will never be more constant, it will never be more consistent, it will never be steadier than the source in which you find your happiness. And so if you find your happiness in shopping, as soon as the buyer's high goes away, then the happiness goes away. If you find your happiness in another person, even in your own children, then as soon as they have a bad day, as soon as they go off path, then your happiness flees and goes with it. But if you find your happiness in the Lord, if you find your happiness in the one that was the same yesterday, today, and forever, if you find your happiness in the one that is everlasting, the one that is all-knowing, the one that is all-powerful, the one that is almighty, the one that has come and sent his son for your behalf to die in your place, if you place your happiness in him, and brothers and sisters, you can have happiness that is steady. You can have happiness that doesn't fluctuate. 
You can have happiness that transcends your feelings and transcends your experiences and transcends the storms in your life. That you can have real happiness. So I ask you again this morning, does your happiness fluctuate? Does your happiness come and go? Because if you find in your life fluctuating happiness, you most likely have in your life idols distracting you away from finding sincere happiness in the person of God. And so as he begins to unpack this, as the psalmist moves through his his thought, moves through his, his argument, he first starts with where we do not find happiness. Where, in fact, if we read verses 5 and 6, we find out, we find our destruction. Where we find not just misery now, but misery forever. Misery that will never end. And it makes sense that he starts this way. Before you can really understand the positive side of something, you must understand the negative side of something. Before you can really appreciate what something is, you must understand what something is not. And this is the experience of the Christian life. That we cannot pursue Christ. We cannot pursue godliness. We cannot pursue any measure of holiness in our lives until first we stop pursuing what we have been pursuing. It's a change of direction. And that's how he starts. He says, blessed is not the man. Happy is not the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed or happy is not the man who stands in the way of the sinner. Blessed or happy is not the man or the woman that sits in the, sits in the seats of the scoffers, those who mock God and we laugh at their jokes. No. Any pursuit of righteousness must completely abandon all of those things. It's the first step of godliness is to abandon the world and move toward Christ. You cannot pursue both wickedness and righteousness at the same time as they are in completely different directions. And so you cannot go with the, with the wicked if you are desiring to go with the righteous. They're polar opposites in every way. But the person that he's describing in Psalm 1, the person that walks in the counsel of the wicked, the person that stands in the way of the sinner, the person that sits in the seat of the scoffer, that person is a person that is totally and entirely immersed in the world. It's a person who finds their advice and their wisdom in the world. It's a person that finds their contentment and happiness in the world. It's a person that finds their hearts longing for the things of the world and longing to fit in with the world and to be approved of by the world and to pass the judgment of the world. In fact, if, even though this was written to the people of God, even though this was written to the children of God, those whom God had decided and desired to pour out his love upon them, even though it was written to them, these people would have been completely undiscernible from anybody else that was around them. They would have dressed the same way. They would have parented their children the same way. They would have spent their money the same way. They would have spoken the same type of everyday language. They would have went to the same places and done the same things. You would have not been able to tell the person of God from the pagan in any way whatsoever. Is it true of us? Is it true of us? Is it true of us that even though we are those that know Christ, even though we are those that have been rescued from the darkness, 
Even though we are those that have been delivered from the bondage of sin, even though we are those walking down the narrow path that only few people find, is it true of us that we blend in with the multitudes? Why is it that these people blended in so well? It's because they had the same counselors. They had the same counselors. They had the same influence. And their wicked heart found their wicked counsel to be perfectly sensible. Wicked hearts always see wicked counsel as being perfectly sensible. Why is it that we are no different? Why is it that we blend in with the people around us? Why is it that we parent like the world parents? Why is it that we spend like the world spends? Why is it that we live like the world lives? Why is it that we look like the world looks and sound like the world sounds? Why is it? Because we have the same counselors. It's because we're getting guidance from the same sources. It's because we're being influenced by the same influencers. You see, where do we get our parenting advice? From the same Facebook bloggers that everybody else gets their parenting advice. Where do we get our definition of success? From the same prosperity-driven culture that everybody else gets their definition of success. Why is it that we look like them? Why is it that our children look like them? Why is it that we blend right in? It's because we have the same advice coming into our lives and we're adhering to it just as they are. Happy is not that person. In fact, we can say the the inverse. Condemned is that person. Miserable is that person. Unhappy, dissatisfied, discontent is that person. That even if you are a child of God, you are not experiencing the vibrant, abundant walk that he has offered you in Christ Jesus. Because you're walking in a way contrary to his own wisdom. Contrary to his own influence. Contrary to his own guidance. Could it be Could it be that we have forfeited the happiness of God and the blessing of God in our lives because we have neglected the guidance of God? Could it be? This morning I ask you to evaluate your counselors. Take account of those people that have the authority to speak into your life. Take account of those people that are influencing the decisions that you make and the way that you go. Is it the advice? Is it the wisdom? Is it the counsel of the wicked? But then he moves on to the positive side, right? And that's really where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning. So so he, he tells us what it's not. It's not, walking, or it's not walking in the counsel of the wicked. It's not standing in the way of the sinner. It's not sitting in the seat of the scoffer. No, it's completely different than that. It's utterly different than that. It's the polar opposite of that. Instead, it is to delight in the law of the Lord. To delight in the law of the Lord. What is the opposite of listening to the counsel of the wicked and walking in that counsel? It's delighting in the law of the Lord. It's treasuring God's word in your heart. It's interesting the way that he doesn't say it, isn't he? Or it's interesting to me anyway. It's interesting that he doesn't say, blessed is the person who reads the Bible. He doesn't say that though. It's interesting that he doesn't say, blessed is the person who who, uh, studies the Bible. He doesn't even say that blessed is the person that memorizes the Bible. 
He doesn't even say, blessed is the person who applies the Bible and lives out the Bible. No. He says, blessed is the person. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who delights in the Bible. Who delights in the law of the Lord. Who delights in the word of God. Delight is utterly different than reading. Delight is utterly different than memorizing. Delight is utterly different than dutifully plodding through page after page after page. Delight is utterly different than that. And delight is the hinge point of Psalm 1. And in fact, with it, delight is the hinge point of your happiness. The hinge point of your satisfaction in God. So when he's talking about delight, what is he talking about? To delight is to be energized and to be enthused. It's to be hungry and then filled. It's to be thirsty and then quenched. The picture here is, is someone who takes great pleasure in what they have. It's someone who finds great enjoyment in what they're partaking of. At this time, the law of the Lord. It's the picture of a, of a king counting his treasure. It's a mother absorbing the smile of her child. It's the parched and dehydrated man in the middle of the desert stumbling into an oasis. Delight, energy, enthusiasm, excitement, anxiousness, wanting it, desiring it, longing for it, and having that desire uh, fulfilled in it. In fact, this is the same language used throughout Psalms and in other places in the Bible. The exact same language, the exact same word translated that speaks of a lover and his beloved. Right? That's the picture. The picture here is a man in pursuit of his wife who has found the woman that transcends all other women in his mind. The woman whose beauty he just wants to sit and just drink in. The woman who he goes to great lengths to rearrange his whole life so that he might pursue her and have her and know her and be with her. That's the picture. It's the picture of the lover and his beloved. It's the picture of being willing to rearrange your whole life, to recalibrate your whole life so that you can be around it and be in it and know it and, and have it in your heart and have it in your mind. And with it, he does exactly what a lover does. He lingers, right? He lingers. Isn't that what he says? He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. In other words, he, he doesn't just read the word, he lingers in the word. It brings him such delight. It brings him such pleasure. It brings him such enjoyment that he just wants to stay with it. He just wants to stay in it. He just wants to bask in it and absorb it and soak it in and mull over it and chew over it and think over it and, and just worship through it and praise through it and think it and ask questions of it and interview it and, and apply it to, its, to his life. No, he wants, to, he wants to linger in the presence of his lover. Think about meditation this way. This is what meditation is, all right? Now, this is not what I was, what I understood meditation to be growing up. When I thought about meditation growing up, you know, we were always taught to meditate on the Word, you know, Psalm 119, all those different places throughout the Bible, meditating on the Word, hiding it in your heart, all of those things. But somehow, and it was probably just me, I came across I, or I came away from that with this understanding of this dutiful, I've got to sit there and I've got to force myself in miserable silence while I really want to be watching the football game and just like, he is like a tree. 
He is like a tree. He is like a tree. That's what he usually tells us to do. You know, emphasize a different word every time. But that's not unhelpful. But, but you know, I'm like, what is like a tree? Like, I'm, I'm over the tree, right? And, but you have this, this burdensome. It's like it, meditating on it. It's a chore. And you just want it to kind of be over. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about at all. This is talking about having your heart so captivated with the word of God. Having your heart so captivated by the law of God and by the promises of God. Having it so captivated, captivated by the revelation of God himself in the pages of a book. Our God is a book-writing God, not a tweeting God, a book-writing God. And it's basking in it and reveling in it and loving it. See, meditation flows naturally out of delight. It flows naturally out of delight. Any of you that's ever been in love knows that. When you're in love, what do you do? You think about her, right? You think about her. You don't even want to sometimes. You like need to stop and just focus on work for a minute, but man, she's there. You're sitting in the deer stand and you're thinking about a girl and you're thinking, what happened to me? What happened to me? I'm going to have to hand in my man card. I'm here dressed in camouflage. My face is painted. I got a deer rifle. And I'm thinking about going on a date with a woman. You think about her. You want to linger in it. And as often as you think about her, it excites your heart. And as often as you think about her, it lifts your spirit. Why? You're captivated by her. You find delight in her. She brings pleasure to your soul. She brings joy to your soul. That's the kind of relationship with the word of God that we're talking about. We're talking about a heart that is captivated by the truth of God. We're talking about a heart that is, that is arrested by it. That longs for it. That wants it. That wants its truth in it. That wants the, the promises affirmed. That wants to cling to it and see it fulfilled in their life. That wants to know God as deeply as they can know God. And have their spirit lifted as high as it can be lifted. Think about it like a sponge. That you have a verse and it's, it's like a sponge. And you want to, to get every last drip of water out of that sponge. You want, you want nothing left. You want, you want to get every possible angle that you can have. Think about it like a husband and his wife. It's him wanting to examine her from every side. Wanting to see her in every light. Wanting to see all every picture that she has so that he might see and appreciate her beauty from every single angle and absorb it and be saturated in it. That's meditation. Meditation is keeping your heart captivated by the word of God. Meditation is keeping your heart captivated by the word of God. He says how often does he do this? Day and night, all the time. Can't turn it off, can't get rid of it, can't stop it. It's just always there. Can't, can't stop delighting in the world. It brings me so much delight that it's just there. It's in me. You see, we talk a lot about the word of God being the bread of life, and it is, right? Paul uses the analogy of milk and, and meat. And so we, we are to think about the word like a food. But the Bible is not a slice of pizza, that you scarf down to fill an empty stomach. No. The word of God is like a perfectly, per, a perfectly cut, perfectly cooked filet mignon that you savor 
and enjoy, and it brings pleasure to you. It does more than just fill your stomach. It lifts your spirit, right? It does more than just, than just give you some nutrients here and there. We're not talking about a multivitamin. We're talking about steak, man. We're talking about steak. We're not talking about something you have to hold your nose and throw it back. We're talking about something you want to maul and savor and enjoy every second of it. You delight in it. You see, as often as you think of it, as often as you think of it, the Spirit is able to apply it to your life. As often as you read it, the Spirit is able to apply it to your life. If you only come across and read a verse one time, then the Spirit only has the opportunity to apply it to your heart one time. But if you read it a thousand times, or, or if you read it one time and then think of it throughout the night and think of it throughout the day and you think of it a thousand times and you meditate on it a thousand times, then a thousand different times and from a thousand different angles and in a thousand different ways, the Spirit is able to take the Word and apply it to your heart and apply it to your life. For me, most often... Let me tell you how this looks. I try to have my sermon, and I don't do this particularly well, but I try to have my sermon pretty well written out by Thursday. I've spent many hours studying and preparing and dissecting and all that, but I, I try to have my sermon written out by Thursday. And one of the reasons that I try to do that is first, it gives me the weekend to be with my girls without, you know, like you get this sermon hanging over, you just can't chill out, I'm just telling you. But the other reason is, is it allows me to think about it. And what I have found to be true is most often the best parts of my sermon come on like Saturday night. Because the word of God has been, the word of God has been treasured in my heart. It's been bringing me delight. And I've been thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And finally, I'll figure out exactly how it applies to me. And it'll have been applied in so many different ways. And it lets me see it from so many different angles. And I'm like, that's it. Man. If we could get beyond the surface level stuff, if we could get beyond the, the he is like a tree planted by the streams and just moving on, if we could take that word and we could delight in it and treasure it and milk it and, and take it and, and sap all of the water out of that sponge, how it would transform our view of God, how it would transform our view of the Bible, how it would mold us more into the, to the righteous and the holy and the wise. Brothers and sisters, linger in the word. Linger in the word. Treasure the word. Stay in it. Think of it. Let it go. Have a verse on your mind that you don't just read on your cell phone the verse of the day and then move on, but instead you take it and you, you think of it over and over and over. If you forget part of it, reread it. But linger in the word. See, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't read our Bibles. And we don't memorize our Bibles. And we don't meditate upon our Bibles because we don't delight in them. That's the elephant in the room. We don't read it because it doesn't bring us delight. Do you have any trouble turning on Netflix and watching your favorite show? Do you have any trouble watching the Alabama or Auburn game? Do you begrudgingly go to the deer stand? Do you begrudgingly go to the golf course? Do you begrudgingly go shopping? No. Those things aren't hard for you. Those things aren't difficult for you because you delight in them. They bring you delight. They bring you things that you enjoy. Why don't we read this? We don't delight in it. We don't delight in it. 
We don't hunger for it. We don't thirst for it. We don't find our minds falling over that way. It's not our first reflex. So what do you do? What do you do this morning if you find yourself not delighting in the word? What, if you, what do you do when you find yourself not finding your heart captivated by the law of God? I like what John Piper said. He said, there's two things that I would tell you to do. The first thing that I would tell you to do is to pray to God that he would change the taste buds on the tongue of your heart. Pray that God would utterly change you so that you would hunger for it and you would thirst for it. Don't you believe he can do that? Don't you believe that's what's best for you? He's already changed your standing before an eternal God forever. He's already redeemed you and made you right. He's already delivered you from your sin. Do you not think he can change the desire of your heart so that you want his word? But then secondly, feast on the promises of Jesus. Feast on the promises of the word. You find yourself not delighting for a moment. You find your heart wandering away from the word and not hungering for the word and not thinking of the word. Wet your appetite with the promises of God. Wet your appetite with the fact that he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Wet the appetite with the fact that he, Jesus has told us, I'm coming back from you. And I'm going to wipe the tears from your face. Wet your appetite with the promises that say, no matter what I'm going through, all of this will be used for my good according to, because for those who love Christ. Wet your appetite with the promises of God. And feel the hunger that you have. Feel the delight that you have. Increase. And then discover how every single verse points you in that direction. How every single verse points you toward the promises that we now have secured in Christ Jesus. Because he gives us one right here. He gives us a rock solid, huge promise for us in verse 3. He says, happy is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and his meditation day and night. And then what's the promise he says in verse 3? He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. See, to understand what he's talking about here, you really need to understand um, the setting in which he's speaking. See, the people that he's writing to in Psalm 1 is, are li all living in the Middle East. Now, maybe you've flipped on the TV and seen some new news coverage or something of the Middle East. And if you did, you probably saw dusty ground everywhere. Because we're talking about a land of deserts. We're talking about a land of drought. Trees there don't thrive. Most plants there, most vegetation there doesn't grow much higher than a man does. Because they don't have plentiful rains. They don't have plentiful water sources. The only way for a tree to survive, the, the only way for a tree to really thrive and to be healthy continually is if it has the ability to stretch its roots into a water source. Otherwise, when the hot wind comes blowing through after all the drought, it would have withered and all the leaves and vegetation will be blown away and the tree will look utterly dead. Not if its roots can reach a water source. Not if its roots can reach a stream. We live in a desert land, don't we? We live in a desert land. We live in a land that sucks the life out of you. We live in a land that brings more difficulties than pleasures. More miseries than happiness. We live in a land that, that throws you down on your face more often than it picks you up. 
How is it that we can survive it? How is it that we can make it? We need a water source. We need a fountain of truth speaking into our life. We need a fountain of happiness pouring into us. We need a a fountain of glory pouring through us over and over and over. You see, the, the tree that he's talking about in Psalm 1 is not one of those lucky trees that just happen to stretch for miles and miles and miles until it finally reached this like little mud puddle on the other side of town. The tree he's talking about, notice streams is plural here. The tree he's talking about is a tree planted in the midst of an oasis with a river on every side of it. When everywhere its root goes, it finds a stream of life. It finds the, uh, the life-quenching power of the water. You see, this is the picture for the Christian that delights in the word. This is the picture for the Christian that delights in the word. The Christian that delights in his word in the word will find themselves firmly planted, will be fruitful, and will uh, be uh, uh, will thrive as a person. This is what he says. He says, "Yields its fruit in its season. Yields its fruit in its season." And then it says, "In all that he does, he prospers." We're talking about a vibrant, thriving tree. A tree that is most fully who he is supposed to be. If he's a fig tree, he's producing figs. If he's an olive tree, he's producing olives. He is doing what he was designed by God to do. What about you? Why is it that you find yourself in an identity crisis constantly? Why is it that you find yourself perplexed constantly? Why is it that you are unsure of who you're to be and what you're to do? Why is it that the church is always in void of people serving and bearing fruit? We haven't got our roots stretched into the water source. We, we, haven't, we aren't delighting in the word of God. Because all of you know that you want to be around this person, don't you? All of you know that you want to be around the pers- person that is fruitful and filled with the word of God. Have you ever been around a person like that? That they're so filled with the word of God that they fill you up when you're around them. How you just want to be around them and and to hear them talk and to let them, because what they do, you know like some people drain life of you, right? Seems like there's a lot of people like that, you know what I'm talking about? These people pour life into you. They're bearing fruit. They're prospering. They're they're a thriving person. They're a, a vibrant person. You cannot be who God designed you to be. You cannot be the truest version of yourself if you are detached from the law of God. If you are detached from the word of God. No, the word of God gives you the nutrients, gives you the life that you need so that you can thrive as a person. So that you might know most truly who you are and live out most fully who God designed you to be. But that's not all. The person, the Christian that delights in the word of God has a durable happiness. A durable happiness. Remember, that's what we talked about. That's the difference in this type of happiness and the happiness found in the world. The happiness that found in the world comes and goes. It's up and down. It's, it's fleeting at best. But not this kind of happiness. What does he say? He says, and its leaf does not wither. Does not wither. Now, here's what he's not saying. He does not say delighting, delighting in the law of the Lord will keep the drought from coming into your life. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say that the lighting in the law prevents the drought. No, hard days are coming. Droughts are coming. Difficulties are coming. Sorrows are coming. What he says is, is not that the law of the Lord will prevent the drought, but that the law of the Lord will prevent you withering in the drought. That when the drought comes, when the difficulty comes, when the sorrow comes, when the grief comes, when the depression comes and the stress comes and the anxiety comes, when all the pressures of life are bearing down on you and the hot air of drought is blowing against your leaves, you will not wither because you are connected to the stream of life. What do you, find, what do, you do this morning if you find yourself feeling like you're withering? This morning, I'm certain that many of you are in a drought. I'm certain many of you are trying to look and to figure out which way you're going to go. You can't tell one day from the next. One, one decision doesn't look any better than the next decision. You've got a diagnosis. You've got a wondering child. You've got a depressed spirit. What do you do? You cling to the fountain of God's promises. You cling to the fountain of God's promises. How do you not wither in the drought? You cling to the fountain of God's promises. You remind yourself that he is with you. Jesus told us it was so. You remind us that he has not abandoned. Jesus told us it was so. You remind us that all of these God is using to shape you into the the man or the woman that he designed you to be. That he is putting you and positioning you to be powerfully used in his kingdom. How is it that you don't wither? You cling to the fountain of his promises. And it's over and over and over. It will pour into you and pour into you and pour into you. And you will find that this is a fountain that never dries up. This is a fountain that never goes away. This is a fountain that never checks up. Day after day after day. Moment after moment after moment. This fountain is true. This fountain is there. Come and drink. Come and drink. See, all of this boils down to whether or not you're a tree or you're chaff. All of this boils down to whether you're a tree firmly planted by the stream, roots stretching out, roots secured, held in place, firm, all the storms, all the winds of drought completely impenetrable for you. Or if you're like a corn husk or a pea hole that has nothing holding it down. That's just laying on the floor. And as soon as the wind comes, it blows you away. See, at stake this morning is who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a tree firmly planted with this happiness that is durable and secure? Or do you want to be chaff following after the counsel of the world? Easily blown away. Who do you want your family to be? Do you want a family that can endure the storms of life? Do you want a family that can endure the droughts of life? Do you want to raise children that are easily shaken and easily blown away? Are children children that can stand firm on the word that has been given? What kind of church do we want to have? Do we want a church that changes its identity every five years? Do we want a church that's up and down, full one day and empty the next? Do we want a church that has no idea who it is or what she should do? Or do we want a church that is 
firmly planted, building on the foundation of God's word, moving and building forward, then I ask us, brothers and sisters, I ask you, moms and dads, I ask you, husbands and wives, to whom do you seek counsel? From whom do you seek counsel? From whom do you seek counsel? Do you seek counsel from the Facebook bloggers? Do you seek counsel from Dr. Oz and Oprah and Dr. Phil? Or do you seek counsel from the all-life-giving Word of God? Do you seek counsel from the only source that can get you through every drought? Do you seek counsel from the rock that you can build your family upon? Do you seek counsel from the one that can speak life into you day after day after day? Do you come to the fountain of his promises and drink? From whom do you seek counsel? From whom are you teaching your children to seek counsel? As a church, what will determine our course? What will determine our path? Will it be the latest trends in cultural Christianity? Or will it be the word of God that we want to build our church upon? This is why in your life, and in your family, and in this church, we must start with the word. We must start with the word. We must go when we have a question about parenting, not to the, the latest and greatest book that's available, but to the, in the ancient word of God. To the saints of old that have had the word poured into their life and the experience that all that the Spirit has used to mold them and give them wisdom. The church that God has given them to, to pour wisdom into their life. How are you going to teach your children to withstand the droughts of earth? Are you going to tell them to just stop listening? Are you just going to tell them to, to kind of just blend in and pretend like none of this bad stuff is happening? Are you going to teach them to face it down as a crusader for the gospel, as a crusader for the truth that has a life anchored in that which will not move? Who will we be? Who will you be? All of it will be determined by whether or not you and we start with the word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive me